Thank you for joining us. My name is Joe Carr. I graduated from PC in 1983, and I work in the college's Division of Marketing and Communications. We will be speaking in a moment with Ralph Tavares, class of 2001, a PC assistant dean who serves as director of Multicultural Student Success Programs. But first, a quick note about some changes in our podcast. Our friend and colleague, Matt Chittam, has decided to step aside as regular host. We really appreciate all of Matt's efforts in building a strong foundation here. His enthusiasm, hard work, and talent all have been instrumental, and we are sincerely thankful. Several of us from the PC Communications team will take turns in the host chair moving forward, and we hope that a variety of perspectives and voices will help keep the podcast fresh and interesting. As always, we appreciate your feedback at podcast at providence.edu. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Ralph Tavares. We talked about a range of topics, from his connection to R&B royalty, to PC's upcoming Martin Luther King Convocation Week, to his important work helping students achieve their goals. We started by talking about Ralph's own journey to Providence College and how his experiences help him build relationships with today's students. Ralph, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thanks for coming into my office, and it's never looked so teched out right now. <laughs> well, this will be fun. I'd like to start by asking you to take us back to the late 1990s when you began your journey to Providence College. What sure. were the circumstances, and what led you to PC? Well, luckily for me, I had, first of all, I had two parents that were very forward thinking in terms of the role of education in my life and my sister's life. We ended up going to the Wheeler School right down the street over in East Providence, right by Brown. And they, they, we didn't come from a lot. We were first gen family. My dad ended up working in the courts after he was singing. We could talk about that in a little bit. My mom was a real estate agent um, and worked in the library at UMass Dartmouth, still does. And that was very strategic because they wanted to make sure that there was a backup plan for my sister and I to go to college in case things didn't work out in high school and there was at least another back door into get in, get, getting into higher ed. Um, but they said very, very early on, they said, we want to give our kids the education that we never got. And so that set us on a journey through luckily private schools, um, Dartmouth, Massachusetts at Friends Academy, and then the Wheeler School. And my journey to PC began with um, my college counselor. His name was Ted Tuttle. Uh, Ted was this gigantic, scary looking guy over on the second floor of one of the buildings and junior year, mid junior year was when I had my first meeting. That's when you're scheduled to go meet with your college counselor for the first time. And I went in, you know, was, I was always a good student, not great. Give you like a B, B minus answer for most things. And I went in kind of schlubby and entered his office for the first time. And Mr. Tuttle whipped me right into shape. He's, you know, he taught me how to shake my hand. He yelled at me and I was like, oh my gosh. And he became somebody that I was fearful of. But then I learned that he was just a very big teddy bear that really wanted the best for me. Um, he gave me a list of schools to apply to. I applied to every single one of them from, I think it was Boston College. My top was Northeastern because I was very worried about getting a job after college. And they had the co-op program that they're very well known for. And Providence was actually at the very bottom of the list. He said, do you trust me? I said, yeah, of course I trust you, Mr. Tuttle. Applied to Providence College. So I applied, got accepted everywhere. And then it was a question of financial aid and 
what we could, you know, feasibly afford for, for, for education. And I was, I remember heading home one day and waiting for a letter from, I think it was Tufts and I didn't get in. So I, I, whatever reason I was hooked on Tufts, but I kept checking the mailbox every day for the envelope. And I went home. There was an envelope from Providence College. I was like, Tufts, Tufts. Nope. All right. Put everything back in the mailbox and went out and hung out with my friends. Later on that night, I get home and my mom's sitting on the couch. My dad's watching TV. They're like, oh, you got a letter from Providence College. I said, oh, okay. Yeah. And I said, oh, I remember. I opened up the letter and I read it. Then I read it again. And then I read it again. And they're like, well, what is it? What is it? And I read that I had been awarded the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Scholarship. So, oh, my mom started crying. They pop open the <laughs> champagne. I wasn't allowed to drink it because I was too young. But they was just, I said, well, I guess I'm going to Providence College. And what I didn't know, I, I had all the potential and I didn't know where to channel it. And what I found out is that Ted Tuttle had applied to the scholarship program for me. I wrote the essay. I filled out whatever forms. I just didn't have any memory of doing any of it, but he guided me in the right direction. And I ended up back here um, because of him. I ended up in college because of him. It's always been kind of paying it back and paying it forward. Um, He ended up dying very shortly after I graduated from high school. He had cancer and he actually hid it very well. Nobody knew. So everything I do is kind of a tribute to him. Well, there are heroes in life everywhere, right? Oh my gosh. Yep. He is, he is a lifelong hero. (laughs) Um, I, I try to thank him every day and all the things that I do, but I never got a chance to verbally thank him. So things come full circle. Now here you are responsible for managing programming that relates to the MLK Martin Luther King scholarship. Yeah. You're involved with these students. To what extent do your experiences help you identify with these students, help them identify with you? And help you establish the kinds of relationships that that assist them in achieving their goals. Yeah, well, I lived it. I remember being a student here my freshman year, and I remember the people that that looked out for me. Uh, Willessie Kamajong, my dean, and I, I still text her every day to say, "Am I doing this right? Am I doing the right job?" Uh, Diana Cruz, who was the director of the scholarship program at the time, um, she was one of the first people that brought me in. And they had programming, they had a structure, it was all run out of the Balfour Center for Multicultural Affairs back when I was a student here. And they were, they were my guiding light. And so coming back here has really been me paying that forward as well. There are a lot of guardian angels on my, my shoulder and, and in the rear view and even in the front view mirror that I'm always trying to live and work into their image. So... My work every day is Willessie Kamajong. My work every day is Wanda Ingram. My work every day is uh, Bob Hamlin, who I didn't really get a chance to meet as a freshman because I think that was right when he retired. Um, but I try to do everything to, to pay tribute and honor the work that they did. So that's as I come back and think about how I do the work with my students, I do it in their image and I do it based on what I remember I went through little knucklehead again all the potential in the world but nowhere to channel it nowhere to go and not sure of the path so i i try to light the path up 
When you're talking with students, are you specific about your experiences? Do you say, hey, I was like you. I had a similar experience to what you're having. Oh, every single time. They're sick of me. I always talk to them about how how important their narrative is, how important their story is, and how much their story plays into their everyday. It plays into the decisions they make. It plays into the the majors they pick. It pays. It, it plays into all parts of their life, not just at college. I mean, we always think of it in terms of the four year that you're here, and it's the four years that we get to affect change and affect how a student grows. But it's really these are four of the most developmental and pivotal years of a, a young adult's life. They're entering into adulthood and they're, they're taking all those energies and figuring out where that's going to go. And so much of that is based on their story. So my, I, I do a lot of programming. I try to bring everybody together as a community in terms of the scholarship recipients. But the, the, the best work I do is the one-on-one and sitting and talking to them one-on-one. The day I can't do that well is the day I need to get the heck out of here. Over time, there's been quite a legacy that has derived from these scholarship programs. Now, the Martin Luther King Scholarship Program is one of a series that represent the multicultural student scholarship programs. But when you take all these programs together as one, you're looking at some 300-plus alumni. So the stories that they're creating and telling now really amplify the impact of all of this work. Yeah, absolutely. Who are some of those people? What are kind of some of the kinds of things that they're doing? Oh, boy. I, I, I think about some of the, the friends that I had that were in my little cohort. Uh, my, my roommate, my freshman roommate was Douglas Ramsey. He was class of 2001. And he is now one of the vice presidents at Travelers Insurance down in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, another friend of mine, his name is Oscar Mayorga. He is now, I believe he's the chief diversity officer at a college out on the West coast. And I forget the name of the college. Um, but I remember his younger sister who is now a licensed psychologist down in Florida, which is where they came from. They, they flew up from Florida to be at Providence college. Uh, the valedictorian, there were two valedictorians the year that I graduated. Uh, one of them was Celine Gomes who came as a MLK scholar from the island of Cape Verde. And right behind me, there's a, there's a big granite fish, and that was his gift from his family to the Balfour Center, and now that sits in my office. And, you know, obviously the Balfour Center is not here anymore, but that's kind of a tribute to, again, the class and, and the program. And it was weird. That was the first thing I saw when I walked into my office the first day that I got here. Um, it's amazing just the, the callbacks that I see every day to that era that I was at PC. Um, there were kids in my dorm, Rudy Klein Thomas, who I believe was class of 99 or 2000. I didn't even realize what kind of a mogul he's turned into. He's out uh, with the Golden State Warriors. He's It's unbelievable what some of our, our scholars have accomplished. Uh, this past uh, November, we had a reunion weekend, and I invited... Uh, Dr. Jay Hughley back to campus to come and speak from his experience. He's now a uh, professor down at uh, University of Pittsburgh. Yeah, University of Pittsburgh um, and does a lot of racial identity development and theories down there with the students that he works with. Um, he was outstanding. And it's unbelievable to for me because we were DJs at WDOM together. So for me to see that guy back then and to see this distinguished doctor now, I'm like, listen, <laughs> I don't know who you're fooling, but 
You know the backstory. Oh, I know the whole. Oh, my gosh. That's all good. (laughs) In addition to the scholarship programs, you manage other programming for uh, multicultural students. And a lot of what you're about involves, first of all, getting students involved. When you were a student, you talked about WDOM. You were involved with the Cowell. You were an RA. You did all kinds of things. You were very much a part of the community. Talk about how important that is and how that sets a student on a certain track when they first get here. If they do the right things in terms of getting involved and getting in the right circles, then they can really uh, enhance their their possibilities for achieving good things. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about, again, the mentors that that helped me out. And I remember Willesi. Dean Kamajong, I, I feel strange still calling her Valesi, but Dean Kamajong telling us to get involved, be active, participate fully. And the, it leads to things. And I, I discovered that by working in the Career Center, too. I, uh, one of the mentors that I had in there my senior year, his name was John McGrath. Um, he retired maybe a few years after I left PC, but it was always about getting involved and networking and expanding your resume. And I just, the, the message I tell my students is that when you get involved in things, you have to trust the process and they will lead to things. You may not know what your full job is going to be for the rest of your life in the next four years, but follow the path. Like, you know what you're passionate about, you know what you like, and you know the things that, that challenge you too. I mean, there are students who come in that are not very good public speakers. I was one of them. And you, you try to involve yourself strategically in ways that will help build your your skill set while you're here you've got four years with every single resource at your disposal use it wisely um so you know if you're not good at public speaking try and get involved in that if you're used to being kind of a loner and not working in groups well we'll get into some collaborative groups where you're actually working together and learning how to work and navigate and communicate as a team all these things lead to things my, my senior year, I would have never thought about being an intern or, or know what that meant. But in my English major, I had my advisor. It was um, Dr. John Hennedy, who I'm so thankful for. Um, and I had a kind of pseudo advisor in Dr. Norma Kroll, who has since passed away. And they, they guided me towards an internship with the Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence and was writing public, you know, public statements and helping with ad campaigns and things like that. Well, that was a full semester and that internship led me to my first job out of college, which was at an advertising firm down in Providence. It was Hurley Chandler and Chaffer. And it was the most miserable job. I hated it, but (laughs) you know what it led me to say, okay, well this is leading me here. And I remember speaking with the um, one of the partners one day. We were driving up to Springfield, Mass., to one of our clients. It was People's Bank. Um, and we we're driving this long drive. And he's like, you know, I don't know if advertising is really what you're, what you're thinking. I was like, yeah, yeah, probably not. So we ended up spending a whole hour and a half talking about career paths and what, what skill sets I had and what I could lead to. And he said, have you ever thought about higher education? And the rest is history. That's what led me into higher ed. So you never know. And again, if I had just stayed in my room and not done any of the things that I did, I was a good writer because of the major I chose, but I also did the cowl and I wrote for the cowl and that helped me become a better communicator. And that's why I did the radio station. I had a fear of speaking in public and I'd like to think that special guests and singing in in front of people helped with some of that confidence. 
Um, and that led to me having the confidence to choose an internship. And then that led to, you know, it's all sacked. And that's the path that I, that students can't see. And I certainly didn't see it when I was a senior or junior, whatever, but you trust the path. And that's what I try to get my students to look at, to see, see around corners. Just sort of opened the door to the subject of music there. Talked about your <laughs> singing and, and performance. Of course, the name Tavares is a familiar one to fans of R&B and funk music. And, <laughs> and this is your family. That the is, legendary yeah. uh, pop group from the, the start of the 1970s. Tell us about that connection and your, oh. and your family and, and how, it, uh, <laughs> how it's affected you throughout your life. Well, it's, yes. That, that's so my, it's your dad. It's my dad and my uncles. Yeah, it's all of them. And boy... There's a whole other podcast series that you could probably write. All right, for, we'll book it. About <laughs> living with a with a, a you know an entertainer like that. It's funny because as I grew up, I didn't know how big he was and how big they were. And it wasn't until I was like maybe middle school and high school, I'm like, oh, they were they were a pretty big deal because <laughs> we never saw that. So the Grammy Award on the mantle didn't we, tip you off? Well, no, <laughs> we just didn't know. Okay. <laughs> and we did. We had the Grammy Award. We have gold records on the shelves and everything. But it was they're, they're just kind of it's almost like a museum mm-hmm. because the dad that, that I knew, he was the one that left the group first. So he left in 82. And the story that he tells is that he came back home from tour one day. And it was literally like flying in and flying out. He has to go into the house. He's got to pack a bag and then he's got to go right back to the airport for the next gig, wherever they were traveling and singing and whatever. And he walked in, it was in the winter time. And my sister, who was probably like one or two years, I don't even remember how old we were, but she, the way he describes it, she was in like a white fluffy coat and a fluffy hat and her gloves were kind of hanging loosely off of her hands and she just was kind of looking up at the door with tears in her eyes as he was walking out again and he's like i'm done i can't do this anymore and so he ended up finding a job working at um new bedford superior court he became a court officer um so he left the glamour life of you know traveling and everything and took a regular you know Maybe not regular. There's nothing regular about being a court officer. But he took this regular position, working class job, and spent over 30 years there. Um, He was at New Bedford Superior. Then he was at New Bedford District Court. um, And then they had the Justice Center that opened up in Fall River. The last case that he worked before he retired was actually the Hernandez trial. And that was the last big thing. And he, he got to see Hernandez every single day and... It was a very high-profile case, and he's like, yeah, I think I'm done after this. This, That's quite enough. But it was, again, looking at the stability of that job and looking at what my sister and I needed in terms of the education. So, again, it went back to education and giving back to us. So You can see how this all connects. Oh, yeah. So. And I, I still, there are so many stories that he has locked up in the vault that I haven't gotten a chance to know. And he just casually, you know, if we're sitting in the car and somebody comes on the radio, he'll start singing along. And I'm like, oh, did you know him? Oh, yeah, I knew Barry White. And it's like, oh, my God. For people who are not in that periphery, they're like, your dad knew Barry White. And for me, it's weird because I'm just like, oh, yeah, he did. And it, <laughs> My wife was like, really? <laughs> it's unbelievable. Well, we certainly enjoyed their performance at Reunion last year, so that was a treat. That was great. And they sounded good. Sure they did. They sounded great. I just wish more people had shown up. Well, I'll have to publicize next it next time. time. <laughs> next time. Is music an important part of your life? What, oh, do, you, what do you like? 
Absolutely. It's funny because being growing up, the only music I, I grew up with was like that 70s, 80s funk, R&B, etc. And I'd like to think that I have a very good sense of music appreciation because of that. Because I can't listen to anything on the radio anymore. I, I just, I think I've given up. I mean, there are like glimmers of hope in some people, but I'm like, oh, I just can't listen to it. I find myself going back to some of the old classics and I'm like a 90s, early 2000s R&B hip hop person. And that was actually a pivotal when I came into PC because I had a lot of friends that introduced me to other styles of music. Because growing up where I did, it was like New Bedford, Dartmouth. It was like you either like hip hop or R&B or you're you're fake, you're you're a sellout, whatever. And I said, oh, I I just kind of closed off the door to liking other kinds of music. And then I went (laughs) Doug Ramsey, my freshman year roommate. I come into the door one day. We live down in Fennel, 120A and 120B Fennel. And I walk in and I hear this. It sounded like death metal coming from his room. It was just like, and I was like, what in the heck is wrong with Doug? So I go knock on his door to make sure he's okay. And he's like, oh, this is corn. I was like, who the heck is corn? Who, are you eating corn? He's like, no, that's the name of the band. And so I opened up, <laughs> I opened up his music catalog and this kid had Tupac, Biggie, 112, he had Mary J. Blige, but then he had show tunes, he had Rent, he had Corn, he had Rage Against... I was like, what in the hell is wrong with you? I just had never seen a collection like this. And we talked about music appreciation, and I I would like to think that's what led me into acapella, too, because we sang all different kind of genres of music in there, too. So... Interesting stuff. I think we'll take you up on that offer to come back some other time and then do a whole one about music. That (laughs) that could could. be fun. We absolutely could. So, uh, Ralph, this uh, podcast drops on Martin Luther King Day, which takes on special meaning at PC this year, the 50th anniversary of his death. Five days of events will include a Thursday, January 18th, 4 o'clock convocation, a keynote address by Dr. King's youngest daughter, Bernice. You're in the middle of all that planning. Excited about it? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. This came up, and, and I didn't know this when I took the position to be the dean of the scholarship program, but I, I assumed, I, I guess you never assume in higher ed or any careers, like, I, I think I'm going to be here when the 50th anniversary of the scholarship program's around. But I was charged by uh, Dr. Hugh Lena or, or Chuck Haberley that said, oh, well, this is going to be the 50th anniversary. We should, you should think about planning an event of some kind to commemorate it. And so I think what most people would have thought is that it was going to be like a, a dinner or a little reception. And I thought a lot bigger <laughs> and proposed this long convocation week that does, a, you know, honors all the things that MLK has done for me and for this college and for, for the world. Um, so to say I'm excited about it is an understatement. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that it was accepted by the college. I, I'm thrilled that it's being supported. Um, I have a monster, unbelievable committee that's helping out with all of it. And I'm, I'm literally taking no credit for the implementation of this week because there are some amazing, amazing people that are making this dream a reality. So very excited. We should clarify something or add some context there it's not only the 50th anniversary of the assassination in april but a group of pc faculty members that year established the martin luther king scholarship program here at pc including chemistry professor dr francis mckay 
whose wife Jackie works right through yeah. that wall and right <laughs> yep. next to you. So yes, it's yes. a small world. Yep. So, and again, and I remember being an RA here and Jackie McKay coming and talking to us about personal counseling and all the stuff that she was doing in student affairs. So there are just so many full circles that have come around with, with, I, I would say that this program is going to be the, the centerpiece of it. It's, it's, it's exciting. Martin Luther King is one of the most enduring figures in recent American history. What is it from your perspective about him that has caused such a legacy and has created a message that resonates still with so many people? Why is that? I think for me, and I, and and I'm thinking too, in terms of the current political climate, I've never seen a time in, in my life where things have felt so polarizing. Um, the current administration in this country, whether you're for or against, I've never seen a time period where it feels like we're so divided. And for me, especially with the 50th anniversary of the scholarship program, the message that I always think of when I think of Dr. King is hope. And I think of unity and I think of community and bringing people together. We can have our differences. We can have our, our different ways of thinking, et cetera, but we're all still a community. And that to me has been the, the resonating tone of the entire week of programming and why it's so important, especially now. Um, we came from a very rocky semester this past semester. We had different racial incidents. I mean, it's been in the news. I mean, it's not any news to you all, but it's been very difficult being a student of color on campus, being a white student on campus, being a first gen, being a faculty member, staff member, everything feels very divided. And what better way to bring everybody together than to have a whole week that the, the, the person is the definition of unity and bringing people together. So yeah, it's, it's, it's critical that we have an event like this and of this magnitude. Does that message of unity and togetherness in the context of the history involving Martin Luther King resonate? Does it work with students of today? I think so. I, I think, you know, you can go through the history pages and you can see the people who were not so supportive of Dr. King. They were more radical. They supported Malcolm X and, and Giovanni. You could go on and on about the approaches, but I think the message is the most important thing. Unity, community, and togetherness. I mean, the theme of the convocation week is MLK's vision of a beloved community. And again, I don't, whether you're, for or against the political powers that be or whatever your ideologies are, I don't think anybody is against community, togetherness, and unity and and respect. I mean, again, we have all different thought patterns and different opinions and different approaches to how we get to that. But the, the, the important thing is getting to the table and staying at the table, togetherness, community, and unity. A great opportunity this week to embrace that. Sure, absolutely. So. And I don't think this this program is going to be phenomenal. I don't think this program is going to be the answer to everything, but holy cow, is it a great start. Last question. We're talking with Ralph yeah. Tavares, Assistant Dean here at Providence College and Director of Multicultural Student Success Programs. So, Ralph, how is the Providence College experience different for a multicultural and or first-generation student today than it was when you arrived in 1997? Oh, that's the scary thing. It, it's it's similar in a lot of ways, and there are differences. I think one difference that I see is representation, certainly. Back when I was an undergrad, uh, the 
total percentage, if you're looking at racial diversity, racial and ethnic diversity, in terms of numbers, it was only about two or three percent students of color who had self-identified in the application process. Now we're at about 17 percent. So the representation is a lot more than than it was when I was here. I mean, we there were like pockets that we could say, oh, there's another like you're walking around campus and you can identify people. Now I can look out the window at any point and I see different faces on campus. And and that's just the visual. I also I always go back to the story because even though students don't always look like they're a part of a uh, racial minority, quote unquote, group. It's about their story and where they came from. We, you know, we have first gen students, we have students of color, we have students who come from different homes and situations. All of that, you don't know until you know somebody. And so that part, again, going back to what's different and what's the same, I find that a lot of the, the challenges that students of color and first gen students go through are similar. Um, I find that some of the things that they go through on this campus are similar. Um, I remember myself, I was profiled by security a number of times when I was an undergrad here. I was like, hey, are you on the basketball team? All that kind of stuff. If you want to go even further into history, Dr. Ingram, who is the, the freshman dean and she cl- graduated in the class of 75, she remembers vividly when she was walking on campus by the tower, which is now known as McVinney Hall. And there were bottles thrown at students from the top tower. And I think they had, they were friends with the basketball players and they dealt with it. But when I arrived on campus, there was a similar alleged incident that happened right off campus. So things like that have stayed the same and things like that continue to be a challenge for our students of color on campus. There's overt hatred and racism that happens. And then there are certain microaggressions and things like that, that happen in the classroom. That, that is the same. And I also don't think that PC is so special. I think this is happening at predominantly white institutions around the country. If you Google any of this, you'll see other colleges that look like PC in terms of race and ethnicity and breakdown and socioeconomic status. You'll see similar challenges. But I think we're poised differently right now. We're poised differently in this new center that has opened, the center at Moore Hall. We're poised differently with this convocation week coming. We're poised differently with our leadership and we're primed for, for, for great things right now. So to answer the very long answer to your question, I find that a lot of things have stayed the same, but we're on the verge of something changing for the better. I, I always, and I go back to Dr. King's message of hope and I've, my students hear me say it all the time that I remain hopeful. One more then. What do you think, what would you like to see Providence College look like 20 years from now? Oh, gosh. What would I like to see PC look like 20 years from now? I, I mean, I would like to see the campus makeup look more representative of our country. If you look at demographics, we see that our country is turning more brown. I mean, we have more people of color from all different backgrounds, we are becoming a bit of a melting pot. And I'd like to see that more representative in our student body, our faculty body, our admin body, our leadership. Um, I think we're missing a huge opportunity by not, by not listening to the voices that have not always been heard. 
Um, I think there are offices, I think there are departments that do it very well. I know Feinstein, for example, the Feinstein Institute for Public Service, their, their pulse and their work is on the community. And I think if we are going to be a PC 200, we need to start listening to the community more. And it, again, goes right back to the theme of the program, beloved community. Ralph, this has been fun. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for your time, and thanks for all you do for PC and for its students. Doing my best. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> we appreciate that. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the Providence College podcast at all the usual places, and they're available on the college's YouTube channel. Feedback is welcome at podcast at providence.edu. Thanks to our producer, Chris Judge, class of 2005. I'm Joe Carr. Until next time.